Super Talk Mississippi media production. Did you know Toyota Brookhaven has sold more new vehicles the last two years than any other dealership in southwest Mississippi? Come see why. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Alamut Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Hump Day. And it is the day after the Independence Day Hollow Day. I trust yours was good. Oh, yeah. It just feels like we're on the Mondayest Wednesday of all time. <laughs> no. It is a bit strange, but we are here ready to uh, keep you informed and entertained for the next three hours. We've got Captain Chris Turnipseed, director of the Mississippi Highway Patrol Public Affairs Division. He's coming on in the next segment to uh, give us an update on the busy holiday travel weekend and it pretty much turned out to be like a five-day weekend. A lot of folks... A lot of folks took off. Yeah, on Friday and Monday, and that's fine. And oh, uh, yeah. combine that with the holiday, which fell on Tuesday. So, yeah, and it's been hot as well. Good grief. We got a little shire that came through the area last night. It was a 70% chance, and that 70% finally got us around 6 o'clock, 6.30, here in central Mississippi. Yeah, I took a screenshot because there was one big nasty thundercloud cell on the radar <laughs> on one side and another big one on the other side, and there was just a corridor, and it was missing me <laughs> for about four hours. But did it finally get you? Finally got a little bit of rain. It wasn't okay. nearly as much as the surrounding area, though. Yeah, I'm slightly north of you, and it uh, it did cross through our path. But the northern third of the state looked like it got uh, a good dousing oh, yeah. for a while. Good old gully washer. Yeah. Uh, it's being also reported that the entire planet has experienced the hottest day in human recorded history. A whopping 69 degrees Fahrenheit average. <laughs> They're saying that uh, records broken in uh, Quebec, northwestern Canada, and Peru, even in Oregon, up there in Medford. Tampa as well, all-time highs have been reached, it is reported. Something else that hit an all-time high was the traffic through America's airports. Three million passengers screened by the TSA in one day, that being June 30th. Said that was the biggest day in the history of the organization. 680 
more travelers screened compared to December 1st, 2019, which had uh, slightly under 3 million individuals pass through the checkpoints TSA has set up across America's airports. Also, sure you saw a whole bunch of dang cancellations. Just total flight misery. Interviews with with travelers across the nation's airports. It, it is. It's miserable. It seems to have started not this past weekend, but two weekends ago, and it's only snowballed from there. It started as small snarls here and there, but it just kept getting worse and worse. And you got a little finger point going on, right? You got oh, the yeah. airlines pointing to air traffic control and the air traffic control pointing to the weather, which, uh, so I don't know what to believe here, but the whole thing is just messed up. There ain't no doubt about that. And More than one person asking, where's Buttigieg? <laughs> He's worried about climate change, dang it. What a worthless guy that is. Speaking as far of climate as change, I completely ruined my sleep my sleep schedule by forgetting how long a movie is based. And apparently, the movie's based on climate change loosely. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Waterworld? Yeah. I haven't seen it since probably the late nineties. It was big, but for some reason, I was like, "Oh, look, it's Waterworld. It's Kevin Costner. I haven't seen this in forever. I'll watch it." Wait, this thing's three hours long. It's brutal. Yeah. I don't remember it being that long. It's um. About the only one I can really pay attention to for that period of time is the Ten Commandments. That's about the only one because it's just such a classic. Uh, three hours of Waterworld is a little long. I agree. Something else going on is uh, those folks over at UPS. They're thinking about striking the UPS workers. They're not happy. Uh, about the various actions on the part of the company uh, vis-a-vis pay. That's really what they're mad about. The union has 340,000 full and part-time drivers, loaders, and package handlers. And they said the latest offer, the latest offer that was delivered by United Parcel Service is, quote, an unacceptable offer that, quote, did not address members' needs. UPS had a choice to make, and they have clearly chosen to go down the wrong road, Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien said in a statement. So the the Teamsters say the negotiations are, are off. As for now, they walked away from the table, and UPS says... No, it's still going on, so I don't know what the truth. Oh, my gosh. So we shall see. We have not walked away, and the union has a responsibility to remain at the table. A spokesperson for the delivery giant. <laughs> How about that, Said. So we'll see where all that goes. In the meantime, also over the weekend, so much stuff happens in a few days. Cocaine. In the White House. Of course, they brought the hazmat team in there when they saw the white powder. Oh, man. It could have been Hunter with Parmesan cheese, right? Well, of course. (laughs) 
No, the problem with that story is the obfuscation from the White House and Secret Service. The initial reporting on it was saying that it was found near the White House. No, it was found in the White House, <laughs> in the library, where there are plenty of cameras. They know exactly who left it there. Oh, gosh. In the library with a candlestick from the game clue. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, uh, something else that really, you shake your head, it hurts your heart, is the shootings over the weekend. And heard on the way in that, um, I can't remember which of the locations, but what we have, Philadelphia, Fort Worth, and Baltimore. Baltimore. Baltimore, yeah. And, gosh, the, the Baltimore shooting, I believe, first, right? I don't know how many... At the block party. At the block party. And you saw the scenes uh, of that. It's just trash everywhere. But what was really remarkable was the little the little tent labels on the streets that for a crime scene that investigators used to... to um, uh, to mark evidence in the form of like shell casings and, and so forth, just hundreds of them. It appeared, you know. I don't, I don't think it was that many, but this person did shoot a lot, fire that weapon a lot. How many fatalities in that one? Thirty or so injured, right? Two. It was two. Two killed. fatalities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, gosh, it's, it's. And then I heard that one of the injured were twin boys. Infants sitting in their mother's vehicle, bullets penetrated window, uh, the window of the vehicle, and then struck three times, I believe, one of the infants sitting in their car seat. Man, I just, just hate to hear this sort of stuff. Fort Worth, three people dead, eight others injured. They, so police say they believe the violence there was related to a 4th of July celebration. Well, what kind of celebration is that when you go harm your fellow man? It, it does. Now, look, this has been going on a while in this country. We have dealt with violent crime for, for some time. This is nothing new. No doubt about that. In fact, statistically, even though there has been a rise in violent crime, it is still nowhere near the peak level in the 70s. It's down. That's right. Uh, and then I think, like in New York, the gang violence in some of the other major cities in the 80s, 90s was nuts as well. So it's true, but it, it's still, it still hurts. It's uh, horrific. It's despicable. It's reprehensible. I, I just feel like we could address this issue more effectively if those in charge in politics would stop justifying crime, defending the criminals almost to the point where they decriminalize crime, and blasting the victims. But that is going on in this country in our justice system to a great extent. Wow, Peter Frampton with my while my guitar gently weeps, bumping us out of this segment. We're coming right back after the break with Captain Chris Turnipseed. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. 
He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Joining us now, Captain Chris Turnipseed, Director of the Mississippi Highway Patrol Public Affairs Division. Captain, thanks for calling in and joining us this morning, sir. Oh, thank you, Gerard. Good morning to you. Uh, happy belated Independence Day to you, and I appreciate, always, as usual, I appreciate, I appreciate my walk-up music there. Yes, sir. We got you covered, man. Rhino's got it going for you. So we wanted you to call in and just uh, give us an update on how things fared across the roadways in Mississippi over this busy and rather protracted Independence Day holiday weekend. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a busy weekend. Well, let's, let's just say weekend. Uh, our holiday period was kind of a little bit different this year since the, the fourth was not really attached to the actual weekend. So we did uh, holidays. We started keeping track of our holiday uh, totals actually on six o'clock on the third and went through midnight uh, last night on, on the fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we managed to we managed to write about. A little bit over forty four hundred citations, which wow. was for two days. That's that's a pretty good uh, amount of uh, interaction with with motorists. There. Bad thing about it, though, Gerard, is we had uh, four fatal crashes uh, in those two days, and those are. I mean, that's that's what tell, always tells the tale. There is is how many uh, uh, crashes we had, and versus, of course, how many of those were fatal. So we had four of those. Uh, those were kind of spread out across the state. Some up north, a couple up north, a few down south, and that's you know that's the bad news of of the weekend. That kind of makes your happy Independence Day not so happy uh, when you have those kind of numbers. I only investigated about seventy six crashes over the two days, which you know it isn't too high, but it isn't too low. But like I said, the bad part of that is going to be those uh, it's going to be those four uh, fatal. And then your favorite uh, category, you know, as usual, yep. <laughs> is uh, the seatbelt and seatbelt and child restraints. We're about five hundred and eight of those. So, uh, <laughs> we're, we're we're still uh, we're still not uh, getting the picture on that one, uh, Gerard. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, so uh, a question, uh, and you may not know at this point, Captain, but uh, you said uh, I believe I heard you say four crashes, right? That. Uh, well, four. Four fatal, fatal, fatal crashes. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, what about the, those uh, those individuals, driver, passenger, in those vehicles? Were they wearing seatbelts? Uh, there was. I think I'd have to go back and look at my data on that. I, I looked at the uh, at the information that was sent in. I believe one out of those three was actually restrained, and I can't remember which one that was. I think we had one of them that was a collision with a uh, with an eighteen wheeler that uh, even with a seatbelt. Oh, those are those are kind of hard. Uh, there's yeah. not much protection we can give you when, when it's a yeah. passenger car versus something that size. But I believe it was one out of those three that, that were actually restrained. I'd have to go back and do some digging, looking. I don't have all that data pulled up in front of me. If I'd have known, I would have got the exact info for you. But 
majority of them were, were, were unrestrained. I think one of them was actually even a motorcycle crash. Mm. Uh, one, of, one of them was involving a pedestrian, which uh, seatbelts uh, uh, were not were not a, a factor there. And then the, the, then the, uh, the uh, motorcycle, of course, doesn't have seatbelts. So then, yeah. then we had one that was with with with, with the big truck, I believe. If I, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So 4,400 uh, uh, citations, uh, right, Captain? Yes, sir. 4,400. Last year, uh, when, like, you gotta, I got to tell you, I mean, we did a two-day period this year because of the way the, way the holiday was. Last year it was a five-day period because the uh, 4th actually fell right on that Monday, so they included the, the weekend, and we wrote about 8,000 last year. <laughs> Okay. But that was that that was five days. Five days, worth. yeah. So this was two days worth, and we're, you know, a little bit over forty four hundred. So uh, I guess if you ratio that two days versus five days, we, we probably did a little bit more. More this year, on, yeah, about five hundred yes, more a day this year, which uh, seems like a lot. So that that suggests to me, just doing the quick math there, that we got uh, troopers that are issuing multiple citations in that two day period. Yes, sir. I mean, that's their job to get out. And I mean, like I said, the the, the, the mission always is is to scratch, to go uh, love on those fatal crashes. So they're going to get out there and, and bust their tails and work hard to try yeah. to uh, keep those to a minimum. But but sometimes it means you know, despite your best efforts, uh, things happen, and yeah. you have you have the fatal crashes that we have. It wasn't. It wasn't because of the lack of effort. I, sure. I can assure you that. Sure. Are there any new laws that went into effect, as they typically do, July one, that that affects uh, motorists, Captain? You know, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> uh, no, and I actually got on the phone. I was trying to make a couple phone calls. N- nothing of note, uh, Gerard. Uh, I talked with the colonel this morning, and there was nothing of note. I know they're okay. working on a few, a couple things. Uh, I didn't, he didn't tell me what those were, but they're trying to work on a couple of things for okay. the next session to get passed. But nothing, nothing relatively new uh, for our for, for state, you know, for the state as far as uh, driving okay. uh, law, laws passed. All right. What about uh, new troopers that are entering the system, graduating uh, from the school, and so forth? Yes, sir. We've got forty-eight that come out of, come out of the last class, uh, sixty-seven out here on the road uh, working. Uh, some of those are still in training. We have some prior law guys that had an abbreviated field training uh, program. So we've got 48 new ones, and right now we're hitting a huge, huge, huge recruiting campaign, uh, trying to get ready for this next class we got, which is Class 68, okay. which will which will start in January. And uh, so we're out here beating the bushes, and we're you know going making visits and uh, trying to get some interest. Uh, we all, we've, we've had some we've had a lot of inquiries about it. So I like kind of like where we're going with this, and hopefully we can uh, put another class out, fifty to sixty or so uh, new troopers here in uh, twenty twenty four. You know we're looking. This administration has, has been really committed to add new troopers every year, which is a great thing. Uh, right. I mean that's really helpful. I think the citizens of the state of Mississippi will see the benefit of that, and uh, you know, hats off to them for getting us the help we need. You know, retirement. We got a lot of guys coming up or getting older and. Yeah, you know, just getting out of getting out of the highway patrol. You know, they've they've served their time. They've aged out, and we're trying to keep those uh, replenished uh, with, with new faces and new names. There's so many of them now. Started to come on in the last. We've had, I believe we've had 
if I remember correctly, uh, we're running our seventh school for this one in January. will be our seventh school since uh, 2018. And a lot of these names and faces, I'll see them out around headquarters and all, and they're just like brand-new guys. And I'm like, wow. I mean, it's just – I know I'm getting up there in my career when I see seeing folks I don't recognize anymore because I've been around – this thing for about 25 <laughs> years now. A lot of new faces yeah. on the Highway Patrol. We're appreciative of that. We appreciate what the state has done to help us get that manpower. So, Captain, when you uh, to your point, when you look at the net between the, the natural attrition, those that uh, that uh, leave the Highway Patrol, their time for retire, relative to the the newcomers, new troopers graduating and entering uh, service, are, are we netting ahead or behind in that respect? Well. It, it's one of those three steps forward, two steps back. We yeah. net, we net maybe you know, we net a few. We don't net many. Yeah. Uh, I mean that's just the way 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 it always is. But you know when you keep running these schools, uh, concurrent schools, yearly, you know back to back to back, uh, we're hoping we can get ahead on the numbers. Like I said, it's a slow crawl. Yeah. It's a slow. Uh, it's a slow crawl, uh, trying to get get the numbers net up because you like I say you lose. Uh, multiple yeah. you know, within within a year of retirement. So that's that's the mission, and that's why we keep running these schools back to back. And it's looking better, but it's, it's still nowhere near that six fifty that were that were allotted. Yeah. Is there anything you, you mentioned that uh, nothing uh, notable went into effect July one from a, a law perspective uh, that affects motorists? A- anything in particular that uh, you guys are looking for in the next session that you can discuss with us? I mean, I got some personal things I would like to see, but uh, nothing that I know of. Okay, I mean, I'm not in the legal, I'm not on the legal team, and I know the laws that there are out there right now are some pretty good ones. I would like to. I mean, I would just honestly, I'd like to see some, some, uh, you know, maybe some <clears throat> changes and just some easier on our, our texting and driving, our our, yeah. our distracted driving laws. Uh, a lot of these states, I've heard, you know, recently, like over, I believe in Alabama, they've got a, an action. You know, you've got to have law has just got to be in a hands free. You can't you can't even be holding a cell phone in your hand while you're driving. Mm. So uh, it's got mm. to be totally hands free. I would love to see, you know, it's my preference to us move towards something you. like that. Try to get uh, people to actually stop looking at their phones uh, driving down the road. That's that's the big one. I, I would say the biggest thing. I mean that's the uh, yeah. that's the epidemic that we're dealing with, you know, now in the age of technology. Right. mainly is that. Uh so I would say, just for me personally, okay. I, would say, I would like I like to see us then try to move towards some of these other states, or just from a law enforcement point of view, anyway. Captain, appreciate you coming on, sir. Uh, a big thanks, of course, and shout out to the men and women of the Mississippi Highway Patrol, the troopers who, many of which uh, worked on the holidays so that we can be safe on the roads. We appreciate their service. Appreciate you giving us an update. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Captain. Yes, sir, Gerard. Thanks for letting us go. get on today, and we'll talk to you later, man. Thank you. Have you got a great it. week. You got it. You too. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Bring the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
on the ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395. Hey, Derek Tapp. I know Derek. Uh, Tapp Realty. Derek is, uh, what county are you in, Derek? Up in the northeast part of the state. Maybe Tippa, one of those. Why isn't data for traffic fines easily accessible to drivers in the best interest of driver safety? Is it not accessible? I don't know what exactly he's talking about. I mean, you can get your records. I think you have to pay like an $11 processing fee and prove that you are you. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, but I, I guess, Derek, I'd wonder what is it you need to know? Um, I mean, you know what the laws are, right? I think most people, you should if you have a license to drive. So with respect to driver safety, it seems like the one thing that uh, the captain and all uh, folks in driver safety, law enforcement, dwell on is distractions, which primarily comes from using your phone while you're driving. And then I'm just completely astonished every time when the captain shares the number of folks without a seatbelt. And then I wonder, when he talks about these fatal crashes, how many of those fatalities were avoidable if they had been restrained. I don't know. And, and some people have the view that, well, the restraint can cause damage, physical damage as well, uh, to driver and passengers. So I don't know about that. Um, we have the technology, then why is that information available to drivers? I don't know. That's Maybe you should ask that question of your um, your representatives, Derek, and we'll, we'll see about that as well. And I'm sure at the, the fair we'll run into all those folks, including uh, Commissioner Tyndall, and we'll ask. I, I'm honestly not sure. Tishomingo County is where. I knew it was some. I said TIPA. My apologies. I knew it was somewhere up there. Hadn't heard from you in a while. Some jobs require driver's record as part of their application, says uh, most. Well, I think that's pretty normal if you've got to drive, especially as part of your job, right? Part of your um, your occupation with a company. Sure, that makes sense. And if I'm not mistaken, just thinking back through my business days, and we had folks that um, drove as part of their their job, part of their business responsibilities, and often they would be in company vehicles. Sometimes they'd be in their own, and we, of course, would reimburse them for the travel. But I, I want to say, Rhino, you, for insurance purposes, you perhaps had to know the uh, the driving records. You had to research that as as part of insurance, and they would. It seems like there were some provisions in the into coverage that uh, might exclude certain people with uh, certain issues on their driver's record, unresolved issues, or uh, of course you got to have a driver's license. That'd be the main thing. If you, for some reason, your license has been revoked, uh, I want to say maybe DUI would be a problem as well uh, for coverage. Uh, if it's in some period of time. So I certainly get that. 
So you want to know, says uh, Derek, areas of the most highly ticketed roadways. Well, I know we have somebody uh, that texts us all the time, Rhino, that um, complains about the speeding on 59, right? In that um, where they feel like that that uh, motorists are not being pulled over, cited for speeding. It it is fast. I'll agree. When you take that little bypass around Hattiesburg, certainly when you're traveling 49 going to the coast, vice versa. Yeah, I I, I do see folks moving on at quite a rapid pace. That is true. And I I don't know that I've ever seen highway patrol around there, but, I mean, you can't tell just anecdotally, randomly, for the 15 minutes I'm on that four or five times a year. I don't know that that means anything. So, What are a few things the state should do to make Mississippi a more business-friendly state? Well, there you go. Ben from Madison just pivoted for us there and changed uh, change the, the subject. That's fine. Well, here's what I can share with you, Ben, again, and and I know folks know that listen to the program that I have been honored, privileged to work in Madison County, at least, in economic development. And and I've never heard a business prospect, even those that are from out of state, thinking about investing in Mississippi and – pursuing some sort of economic development project in the state across the spectrum of industries. I've never heard them say anything to the effect that, well, Mississippi is just an unfriendly state to do business in, by far. I mean, like, way at the top of the list and everything else is just a distant last. It's availability of workforce. I just That is the number one thing. Can I get the workers I need? to staff whatever the operation is that I'm thinking about setting up. And and something else that comes up is just the work ethic of our people. I've never heard that referred to in a negative sense, but it's just availability, by far, number one thing. Next, certainly in the recent projects that, that have, have crossed – um, I, I guess our economic development efforts is power, availability of sufficient power, electricity. There are some, by the way, who have, uh, talking about big companies, have some internal policies uh, vis-a-vis the power they will consume. They want to make sure that a significant portion of that is produced by renewables. That is part of the decision that factors into those decisions before they make an investment. I think this is just aligned with the ESG movement uh, in the country and certainly in corporate America. Social responsibility, if you will, and E is uh, the E part of the ESG is a big component of that, environmental, what it stands for. So they're looking to be environmentally responsible and knowing that the power they will consume is produced to a great extent sourced from renewables. So that does come up. 
I don't remember that coming up five years ago, but it comes up more frequently now. But that's the biggest thing. Certainly, a lot of people would say, well, uh, taxes, the tax environment, the regulatory environment, these are things that businesses consider. And even though I and many others support full elimination of the income tax, and that's been primarily, of course, focused on the individual income tax, it really doesn't come up, to be honest with you, folks, um, from prospects looking to expand their operations in Mississippi that are currently here or expand into Mississippi, invest in Mississippi. They're from out of state. Our tax environment is already relatively favorable compared to the rest of the country. And and who would be affected by elimination is the workers, would be the workers at those companies. So that certainly comes up. From a regulatory perspective, Mississippi is really not an over-regulated state. I would make an exception there. However, that um, I think our licensing structure is overburdensome. And so this would affect not big businesses, but small businesses. I think we license too much, and I think it's uh, a, a little too onerous to obtain a license. And also we have a system in this state where those who approve and issue licenses are often competitors. They're in the same industry as the individual or individuals seeking a license. So you want to open up a certain sort of business, you got to get permission from those already in the business that serve on those boards that grant the licenses. So I would say that's problematic uh, from a business perspective. If you look at the healthcare business, is one that we cannot ignore because it affects all of us. Uh, big issue there is, again, availability of workers, extremely low reimbursement from private coverage in Mississippi, and just a very high number, if not the highest number, of uninsured in Mississippi that can't pay for health care, won't pay for health care, don't have the means to do so. We're coming right back. Final segment in this hour on Middays in the Element Well Studio. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. In the Element Well Studio, it's Middays, Super Talk Mississippi. Chris from Greenville says, I know the risk of not wearing a seatbelt, so why should the state determine if I wear a seatbelt or not? Me not wearing a belt does not affect others' safety, only my well-being. Yeah, but it affects my pocketbook, Chris. 
It affects my pocketbook because there are costs associated with that, and the taxpayers pay those costs. Not only that, think about this. We just talked about the high number of uninsured in the state. You're involved in a crash. You don't have your seatbelt on. You're hurt more so than you would have been had you had it on, or maybe you're hurt, and with it on, you wouldn't have been injured at all. But you end up getting carried to the hospital, for example, the ER. In an ambulance, you don't have any insurance or means to pay. So the hospital, the ambulance, and all the other parties involved in that, the providers, absorb those costs, and they pass it on to us. That's the issue. Now, you can make that argument about a lot of other things, too, just irresponsible lifestyles that we all pay for. That's just a fact. So it's more than just it only – I know that's the, that's the typical thought. Well, it only hurts me. No, it doesn't. If you would sign some waiver that says, look, I'm not wearing a seatbelt, and if I'm hurt, and, and it can be determined, which I don't know how you could, that my injuries sustained were the result of not wearing a seatbelt, I can't pay for the medical treatment and care that I need. Therefore, you don't have to accommodate me. Think about that, how crazy that is. Now, again, I, you could make this argument across uh, just a, a wide range of other issues, right? You, um, you're unhealthy. Uh, maybe you have diabetes or high blood pressure or high cholesterol, but you just don't take care of yourself, and you don't pay for your health care. And everybody else absorbs it is what happens. Man, these are, these are tough ethical issues. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I get the point um, that Chris is making that, well, yeah, it's my choice. The state shouldn't compel me to do that. I, I certainly understand that because, in general, you think about that only affecting your person, you physically. But there are so much other um, issues that, that are affected by that. It's a it's a tough one, honestly. I mean, you could make the same point about outlaw and distractions, use of your mobile phone while you're driving. You certainly could hurt other people in that case. That's different than Chris's point about not wearing a seatbelt. I'd have to think about could you hurt somebody else? It's more like the handrails getting in the way of the view at the Grand Canyon. That's yeah, true. Similar in that respect. I got it. He says, I'm a 15-year uh, first responder. It's 50-50 if injuries occur or not. I do understand what you're saying. Love the show, guys. Thanks. See, so I'm not trying to be argumentative, Chris. I'm just in, encouraging you to, to think beyond just the, the individual themselves. Because when a crash happens, I mean, it, it uh, causes lots of other parties to be mobilized. Think about that. Lots of other assets and resources to be used. Some are public assets funded by taxpayers. Some are private. But in the case of health care, when it's private, uh, even if it's a, a private, um, say, ER, physicians, obviously, health care professionals, and you're not paying, I mean, those are just costs that are sunk into the system, which is what causes all of our health care uh, to rise in, in expense. It's an issue. 
Uh, let's see. So back uh, something else back to uh, what uh, Ben and, and Madison was talking about. A few things the state could do to make Mississippi a more business-friendly state. And so I, I mentioned the licensing situation. Is a, I believe is a big deal, and again, that primarily affects small, mid-sized businesses, startups that seek to get in business, and then they realize I got to have a license for this, and it's fairly onerous. You got to take a bunch of tests sometimes. I mean, this is something that many of us have fought against for a while, and we're making progress, but I think we got uh, a lot more progress to be made along that front. Uh, but there's no comparison when you're talking about big economic development projects that would hire lots of people with high wages. There's no doubt that availability of people is by far the top of the list. Availability of a qualified workforce, which is why there's been a fair amount of focus on that uh, in the state of Mississippi. I would put it this way. How do we get... Corporate headquarters here, how do we get entrepreneurs to start their businesses here and grow them into hopefully large businesses here? That's what would truly make a difference in our state. First hour in the books here on Middays. We're coming right back after Fox News and Super Talk News. Stay with us. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays from the Element Wealth Studio on this hump day. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between Income, growth, and guarantees. And what about the Palmer Home Radiothon, Rhino? Are we going to be up there? Oh, yeah. Coming up not tomorrow, but next Thursday, we will be on the campus of Palmer Home doing our all-day-long Radiothon, asking you to donate to better the lives of these kids put in unimaginable situations, but brought out by the good folks at Palmer Home. Looking forward to that. We'll be headed that way, and it's uh, it truly is all day. We raised a bunch of money last year, but we intend to eclipse that figure for this year. Looking forward. On the ceasefire text line, Gerard, can I vote? I think it's supposed to be Republican, right? Are you reading that? On the 601-1036, August, in the August primary, and still vote in local election. I'm not following the question. There's there's nothing about voting in the primary that would preclude you from voting locally. It's probably might be at the same time. It it just depends. So I'm not sure. Or are they talking about primary and then general? In which case, yes, you can vote in the primary and then vote in the general. Okay, yeah, absolutely. But if you vote in one party's primary, you cannot vote in the other party's runoff. That's correct. But if you don't vote in the primary. Regardless of your affiliation or registration, 
by party. You can vote in either runoff. Correct. If there is one. So uh, the typical example is in the state of Mississippi, we run into these contentious races, like our lieutenant governor's race would be one that many believe will go to a runoff, even though there's only one other candidate in it at this point. I would say it's unlikely, honestly. I think when we had two, more likely. It's unlikely now. But if a Democrat chooses to not cast a ballot in the Democrat primary, they could, in fact, vote in the Republican runoff. Correct. And that's uh, in accordance with state of Mississippi law, so-called crossover voters. Crossing over meaning... I'm a registered Democrat. I'm voting in the Republican runoff, not the primary. Now, if they voted in the – they could vote in the Republican primary, even though they're a registered Democrat. There's nothing in Mississippi that compels you to vote in the party's primary that aligns with your voter registration, the, the party that you uh, deem to be associated with. So say, for instance, you vote in the Republican primary – and then you want to vote in your local general elections, and you only have Democrats on the ticket for the local general election, you can still vote in the local general election because that that doesn't come into play with crossover voting. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, back to, uh, if I can find it here, back to uh, Ben. I, want, I thought that was an important question as we approach the uh, the elections here. I'm looking for uh, Ben's post. Yeah. So he says, I've always heard workforce development is the biggest hurdle the state has attracting big businesses. And it's every state, Ben. It's not just per se workforce development. But I I understand what you're saying. But it's just availability of qualified workforce for the jobs they need uh, to staff the operation. It absolutely is the number one issue. And, And all you have to do is go out and talk to business executives, business owners, at all levels of business. What's your number one problem? They'll tell you that. Workforce, available talent, number one. And is that perhaps more intense, more pronounced today than it was? Maybe. I, I know in my period as a as an entrepreneur, hiring people, that was always a big issue, especially – in our industry, where the demand for talent was significantly greater than the supply, not not only within the state, but nationwide and globally. Cybersecurity is an example where the need is about 10 to 1. The, the number of just not just available uh, as in they need work, they're looking for work, just available as in qualified in the country what we need. Uh, as a nation, is about 10 to 1 qualified individuals, those who can actually do that sort of work, perform that kind of work. And the thing that always frustrated me is in cybersecurity is the lack of interest in that field from young people. They just don't seem to want to do it. They're, so you hear a lot about, well, uh, an older person will say, well, my younger child or my grandchild or some my nephew, my niece, something like that. Oh, they're really good on all this computer stuff. Well, no disrespect. They're good users 
That's different than creators. Cybersecurity is uh, is is more of a creative endeavor, and that you've got to use all the various tools at your disposal to design adequate, effective defenses of corporate systems and data. It's just complicated. And I just found a lot of people just didn't have an interest in that. And that just puts more pressure on, yeah, but we have a huge need. Nobody wants to do this kind of work. And it's not because it's not highly compensated, because it is. It's very highly compensated. And that stands to reason. It's a demand and supply issue. But, yeah, that's a, it's a big problem, uh, Ben, not only in Mississippi. And honestly, I don't think we spend enough time talking, Rhino, to young people in Mississippi. We, we all are aware of the so-called brain drain, and, and specifically those who graduate from our fantastic colleges and universities that don't stay here. Now, I know a lot of them came here from out of state to go to school and never had any intention. They always wanted to go home or elsewhere. But I don't know that we ever talk to those people and find out while they're in college, or maybe even at the high school ranks, what are your plans as far as uh, where you would take up residence, where you would seek work and to live? I'd like to see our legislature and our state leaders have these conversations. I have, and it's just across the board. They don't want to stay. They, you know, for a young person, say in their 20s, they don't feel like there's enough to attract them to stay here, enough to keep them here. We don't really have the social life. We don't have the amenities that are important to young people. Now, when you get older, those things change. Your your wants, your desires, and your lifestyle, that changes. I think anybody that's of age could could rightly say that. Yeah, they saw that. I came back because I felt like my best chance of succeeding in business was to do so in the environment that I knew best, where I grew up, that I was most familiar with. But that's kind of rare, honestly. Most leave, never come back. I remember when I first got out of school and I got assigned to a project in Portland, Oregon. This is kind of crazy. But in the in the big four world, uh, talking about accounting firms, I, of course, worked in the consulting division, not the accounting practice. And our big customer that I was assigned to because of the work I did in Louisiana on the state retirement system was the state retirement system for the state of Oregon. They essentially contracted with the company for a similar project. This is crazy, Rhino. The partner, so in that world, there's a partner in charge of the project, of the engagement, then their manager or managers, the next level, that are day-to-day there, essentially managing the project, and then below that, there's what they call seniors and then staff. Just four levels in those firms. Partner, manager, senior, staff. I, at that time, was a, a newly minted senior. Usually takes two years, believe it or not, two to three years. The partner in charge, a Mississippi State grad. In Oregon, in Portland, in the Portland office, that um, this is kind of weird. He was trying to talk me into moving to Oregon permanently and working out of the Portland office. 
Never forget that. He was from Jackson. This was weird. Jackson went to Mississippi State, I think had a degree in electrical engineering, went to work for Anderson, the consulting division, ended up making partner, takes a dozen years or so. He's in Oregon. No intention. Of course, this is 40 years ago of coming back. So what is it we need to do to keep our young people, our best and brightest? That's how we'll truly grow the state's economy, which I believe is key to improving the quality of life in the state of Mississippi. That is the capitalism and economic growth. That is the route to improving virtually everything in our state. We're coming right back with more from the Element Well Studio. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio. Okay, so some folks have sent some clarification. I wasn't quite sure what the texter was talking about voting in the two different primaries. So I, I'm honestly not sure if it's if it's different or not. If I mean. I don't think you could vote in a Republican primary, which is going to feature all Republican candidates, and then turn around and go vote in the Democrat primary. So the point that was made is, well, if all the they choose to vote, say, for state elections, House, Senate, all the other statewide offices, vote, therefore, in the Republican primary for that, but maybe locally they favor Democrat candidates, or maybe they're only Democrat candidates. Can they do that? I'm honestly not sure. I mean, I I did have the law pulled up. It's been a while where I've read specifically what it says about voting in primaries. And I'm not sure if you can vote in both or not. I don't think you can. No. Because that, that would kind of nullify and negate the provision of the law that says whichever primary you vote in, you're only eligible to vote in the runoff, right? That wouldn't work. So I guess you got to make a choice is what it boils down to. Unless somebody knows different. Yeah, somebody says you can't vote both. I don't think you can either. I'm just reading, re- actually recalling the law. You remember, we pulled it up. I read the exact language. And it is true, you don't have to declare a party when you register to vote in Mississippi. And so I, I possibly need to clarify my statement on that. But you do have a voting record. And you can tell historically which primaries a voter voted in. Because you so, got to remember the primaries are run by, by the, the individual parties. The parties, that's right. So uh, you do have a record, and the crossover could occur if historically you voted, for example, in Democrat primaries, 
and then you sit this one out to wait to vote in the runoff to help a specific candidate in the other party that made it to the runoff because you fear the other one getting elected. You could probably say that's what happened in 14 with the Cochran-McDaniel race. That's certainly what the contention was, let's put it that way, that there were a lot of Democrats. Nobody ever said registered Democrats. They just said Democrats that voted in the runoff that put Senator Cochran over Chris McDaniel in the runoff, but did not vote in the primary. You remember all that, Scuttlebutt, don't you, Rhino? That was some, that was the big thing, which is perfectly legal in the state of Mississippi. And honestly, just thinking through it, again, we have laws that prevent a law that prevents voting in one party's primary and another party's runoff. You've got to be consistent there in accordance with the law. But the only way to prevent, say, Democrats from even participating in a Republican primary and vice versa would be to declare your party affiliation as part of your voter registration and have that on file. Hmm. Let's see. There was something else that I wanted to get to, uh, Rhino, that um, had to do with local and county elections. Here we go. Patrick and Louisville. How do we get county and city elections to match today times instead of just being just a popularity contest? Take a look at some of the qualifications for some of these positions, and it's just strictly a popularity contest. Should we at least require some kind of background knowledge of the job you are running to be elected? No, in my view. Uh, I mean, that's that's the purpose of elections. That's the purpose of uh, having voters cast their ballot for the candidate that they'd like to see elected. It is incumbent upon them to research those candidates. That's the process. It's the voting process. I think the point is, Patrick, nobody does it. I shouldn't say nobody. Most people won't really dig into, you know where they get their information about candidates? From their opponent. It's not so much from them. They, I think they put more stock in, they're more highly influenced by their opponent, who will expose everything, so-called opposition research, oppo research for short. So what you get, if you think about it, look at our elections now. So look at the most contentious at the statewide level. I don't think there's any debate there. It would be lieutenant governor. But if you look at what challenger Chris McDaniel has been campaigning on, it's primarily been all of the grievances about incumbent Lieutenant Governor Hoseman. I did see over the last few days a pack now, a Hoseman pack. It looks like a pack. Um, is running a, a video feature. I haven't seen it on television, but I don't watch local television too often. But I've certainly seen it on social media, where it really just blasts Chris McDaniel. I don't know if you've seen that one or not, but it, it digs up some it digs up some statements that Chris McDaniel made in the 2016 um, presidential election, where he was 
shall we say, not favorable on Donald Trump at that time. It was, wasn't it Ted Cruz that won Mississippi, I believe, in the primary in 16, the Republican primary? I, I don't think so. Okay. Well, look that up for me. I know Cruz had strong support, and if I'm wrong, somebody can help me out here and correct me, but I thought Senator Chris McDaniel was a supporter of Ted Cruz. I don't want to say even Cruz came here, did he not? Who won? You looking at that? Yeah, 16. Trump was number one. Cruz was number two in the in the primary, right? Correct. Okay. I think I think Trump pulled it out. Uh, maybe what I'm recalling is that Cruz was leading in various polls in Mississippi, and then remember Trump came here, went to the coast, had a big rally, and I think that pushed him over. Okay, Cruz was two, and there were a lot of people in the Cruz camp that were very anti-Trump. Sort of never-Trumper type people. I'm not saying that Senator McDaniel was that, but he did make some statements. And I think one that that uh, Delbert Hoseman is is um, exposing, I don't think this is a big deal, but he said, hey, Trump's not a true conservative or something to that effect. And there are a lot of people that share that view that, you know, Donald Trump is really not. Of course, that brings us back to this. This uh, infinite debate, Rhino, of, okay, what exactly is a conservative? Uh, Look no further than the abortion debate, because now we have Mike Pence, who would be considered uh, a person of uh, deep faith and uh, discusses that regularly as a a candidate and an elected official, now is calling for a 15-week ban, federal ban, on abortion, 15 weeks. So I kind of thought the the widely accepted Republican principle was that life begins at conception. Would you not agree? That's what you typically hear. Well, so he's calling for 15 weeks. You got DeSantis, who's being blasted by Trump for signing off in Florida on a six-week. Uh, abortion ban, a six-week gestation period, after which abortion is not available in Florida. And Trump says, quote, that's too harsh. And he's also, Trump, the last few days, has called out DeSantis, who's made some statements about Trump being very accommodating of the LGBTQ community. I think he made a statement, Rhino, did you see this, where yeah, Caitlyn Jenner could use any bathroom they wanted to in my house or something to that, or the White House, or uh, I, I may be misstating it a bit. But bottom line was very accommodating, according to DeSantis. And now the DeSantis is getting backlash from GOP, the GOP LGBTQ community. They're going after DeSantis, saying he's hurting their cause, right? So... It's politics. I mean, this is what they're capitalizing on. All I'm simply trying to say is... Which is is why you have so much of the population that just tune it out until the run-up to the election, and then based on the information they see from the opponents, based on what they're seeing their friends and family talk about on social media, they make a popularity pick. Because there's so much nonsense and BS flung from both directions at all times, it's mind-numbing to try to stay plugged into it. Which I think just uh, illustrates uh, my point that we learn more about candidates from their opponents 
then we do our own research from themselves, and that's what influences our vote. It devolves it into a popularity contest. i got a couple other thoughts about that, Patrick, when we come back on the other side of the break. Stay with us. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, bless my soul, what's wrong with me? I'm itching like a man on a fuzzy tree. My friends say I'm acting wild as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. We are back. So we were just talking about uh, the coming up elections. Uh, They are just around the corner. Um, So, you know, this idea about it being a popularity contest that someone, elections in general, um, and this Patrick Lewis will said this, Patrick, it's not just state elections. It's all elections. And by the way, people vote emotion. They just do. And the candidate who stokes their emotions the best, who influences those emotions, and a good bit of that, like it or not, is physical appearance. It just is. It's just human nature. You're shaking your head, Rhino. You agree, and it's oh, yeah. studies have been done on this countless for decades. By the way, so it has a lot to do with it. Um, so it, they do become popularity contests, and you could also infer from that that's why you need money to build your name ID. The better known you are, because you guys know as well as I do, there's a whole bunch of people that vote and don't know squat about the candidates. So how do they vote? Oh, I recognize that name. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. More than the people who are well-informed, which is a small number. Let's put it this way. More than the people that spend their time to go to these, these events and these rallies and these meet and greets and stuff like that. I, I, those look like they're big deals, but relative to the number of people who actually cast a ballot, it's infinitesimal. As much as I liked the Neshoba County Fair, it's a spectacle. It's fun. And you get to see the candidates speak in the pavilion there, and we get to interview them. We'll be there later on this month. Fact is, that's just a tiny fraction of the voting base, many of whom don't even know what the Neshoba County is. Many don't know there is a Neshoba County, which is sad. Honestly, and don't take the time to go understand the candidates' various positions. Something we have analyzed here on the show, looking at this most contentious race coming up in the primary between the lieutenant governor and Chris McDaniel. We shared with you, and we'll dig into that some more as well, where they stand on the various key issues. Really, it's not where they stand on the issues because it wasn't a Q&A type format, these reports. It was really what their priorities were, what their plans were. Uh, because there, I think it's fair to say there's some issues that I deem as critical, as key, 
that really didn't elicit any position from either candidate. I, I'll give you one as an example, and that's the certificate of need loss. I don't see how anybody could deny that the state of health care is, is uh, at a critical juncture, not only in the state, but in the nation. And from a public policy perspective, their certificate of need laws, which I believe are arcane and need to be repealed, don't get a lot of attention. I will say that one key distinction between the candidates is that uh, challenger Chris McDaniel does support school choice. The lieutenant governor does not. If he does, he certainly hadn't made that clear, because I've talked to him about it, and he, and he, um, he has an aversion to it, and he has his reasons for it. And I don't know that either of the candidates said a whole lot about the ballot initiative process and where they stand, other than certainly when we've talked about it here on the show and others have asked them about it as as well. But you don't, you know, it, it doesn't really rise to the top of issues debated, or shouldn't say that, discussed. There is no debate, regrettably. I'd love to see one. Chris McDaniel has said he'd like to reinstate voters' rights to the ballot initiative. It's pretty much been this, the, um, the limit, I guess, of his comment on that. The lieutenant governor hasn't really offered any position on that other than when it was being debated and deliberated in the, the legislature. He made it clear that he supported one where the signature threshold would be considerably higher than that which was offered, approved, and passed in the state house. So there's a difference there. But those are some some key distinctions. Still, though, uh, most elections, they are popularity contests. People do vote a motion. And often money flows into these campaigns from sources that seek to have access. It's the way it works. They want to have access. They want to have influence over whoever gets elected. And that's just the way our our system rolls, I think it's fair to say. Moe says, the only position I can think of that does not turn into a popularity contest is the local coroner. That really should be a medical person hired by the Board of Supervisors rather than a political officer. Moe, I'll take it further than that. I'm not sure why we elect transportation commissioners and public service commissioners and tax collectors and tax assessors. No disrespect to those people. They're simply following the law and seeking office in accordance with the law. I just question, Mose, whether or not it makes sense for us to elect those positions. How many people truly know what those jobs even entail? Most people couldn't tell you what the Secretary of State does, honestly. And I do think Michael Watson has done a good job of explaining it's more than just voting and, ele- and overseeing elections. He's pretty good with discussing the other re- chief responsibilities of the Secretary of State's office. Uh, can you give an understandable explanation of ranked choice voting? Is it just another effort to make it easier to disguise cheating? How do we keep that kind of mess out of Mississippi? says Karen in Oxford. 
Uh, no, I can't give an understandable explanation of it. Um, you know, no, it's not cheating, uh, honestly, and it doesn't lead to cheating. The closest uh, analogy is getting into social clubs or sororities or something like that at a college. That's a good point. Where you put down, I want to be in this club the most, so it's number one. I want to be in this one almost as much, so I put it number two. I want to be in this one kind of, but I'm not going to be really hurt if I don't make it. I'll put that at three. And then I have a passing interest in this other one, so I'll put it at four. Yeah. You're ranking your choices, and then all of those ranks get put into a pool. And the easiest way to think of it is in a point-based system. So say, for example, if you have four choices, the number one choice you get, it gets four points. The number two choice gets three points. The number three choice gets two points, and the number four choice gets one point. In that, when they pull it all together, whoever has the most points wins. The problem that you see with it is in contentious races where you have more than one person from the same party, they will often split the choice votes, and then the third choice winds up winning because they were the most consistent. And that third choice is usually from the opposing party. So real simple explanation is... Um, you rank your, your choices, like Rhino said. Let's just say there are 10 on the ballot. You rank them, 1 through 10. I want this person first, this is my second choice, third, and so on. Okay. If in the first round you get all the votes in, if somebody rises to the top and gets a majority, winner. Done. If not, then what you do is you, you take whoever came in last place, all the ballots and voted for the last place vote getter as their first choice, that gets chunked, and all those ballots then move to their second choice. And then you go through the process again. Did somebody get a majority? So it's certainly possible, let's say in a small number of uh, an election with a small number of candidates, that whoever comes in last, like you said, um, in the first cycle, they get they get tossed, and then whoever came in second gets counted as first on those ballots, and they then top the initial top vote getter, most vote getter, and they ended up getting elected. So it's the one who seems to end up somewhere in the middle or close to the top on most of the ballots. I hope that kind of explains it, but it's an iterative process that you keep throwing out whoever got the last and moving those um, voters' ballots to their next choice, count them again until you get somebody that gets a majority. That's the way it works. It's really kind of a mathematical overcomplication of something that's been pretty much set in stone for centuries. That's right. It's um, it's complicated. and by the way, you can use these in primaries or in generals. It's not limited to just the general. So there are some situations, uh, uh, some environments, districts, voting areas across the country where all candidates of all parties are on one big slate. That's how it's determined. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Don't forget Sandy Middleton and Lindsey Simmons talking about human trafficking. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on! Let's get on with the show! 
on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios on the C Spire text line. That's 601-879-4395. Uh, back to Karen's question about ranked choice voting. Just a, a little bit of a caveat explanation so just you'll, so you'll understand the way it works is you take the first pass at all the ballots, count up who got the votes, whoever gets the least amount. I know I said this, but I just want to clarify it. Whichever candidate receives the least amount, you then go back to all those ballots where that candidate who got the lowest number of votes was selected first. And all of those votes for that candidate then get allocated to their second choice. You don't just throw it out. That's what I wanted to clarify. So I want candidate five to be first and, and three to be second. Well, candidate five came in last place in the first count. Okay. Go through all those ballots who voted for candidate five first. Now those ballots, those votes are cast for candidate three. Repeat through the count. And that's how, like, the person who came in third, maybe in the first round, is now first, as you've said, because it kind of seeks the middle, so to speak. Yeah, and in a, in a system where you have multiple viable parties with viable candidates... It is mathematically more efficient for ranked choice voting. That's right. But in a system where you have two predominant parties, oftentimes with ranked choice voting, you wind up with an an extreme point of view winning versus what the majority want. Right. Uh, but, you know... I think the biggest objection is it's just complicated, honestly. And you end up with, um, uh, yeah, so Michael Watson's texted me, our Secretary of State, he's listening. He says, you know, sometimes it's voter fatigue that can get in the way of this and feel like they're really not getting their voice heard when you when you uh, implement this sort of system. I mean, if you don't like the elections being a popularity contest, ranked choice voting pretty much ensures it is a popularity contest because if it's difficult to expect the voting populace to research their candidate and their candidate's opponent, yeah, it's even more onerous to expect them to research every single candidate in a depth to where they can rank them. And he makes the point that uh, you could end up with a lot of just invalid ballots because you didn't rank all of them, or you only rank one, thinking I'm just supposed to vote for one, which is more the traditional method. That's a good point as well. Yeah, and it causes, as he says, fatigue, and then maybe you don't really have a valid election, so to speak, that really reflects the people's uh, voice. All true. Um, so I don't see that coming to Mississippi, honestly. There, it is in place in several states and uh, other districts, counties, cities. I think even New York City is one. In fact, I think they have a like a, a uh, an election for a city council person in New York City. I want to say that's choice. how a house seat from Alaska was decided. It is. You had two really popular 
Republican candidates that split the Republican vote, and you wound up with a Democrat getting the House seat, even though that Democrat was the third choice on a majority of ballots. Maine and Alaska are the two states. I'm looking at it now. I found the data. 50 U.S. cities and counties. 50 U.S. cities and counties use ranked choice voting. And and just looking at the list, looks like they're all blue. Blue cities. Seattle. I wouldn't call Salt Lake City blue. I'd call it red, honestly. But it uses ranked choice. San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley. It looks like most of them are in California. Minneapolis, Santa Fe, Portland, Maine, New Mexico, St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Huh. Um, and someone else uh, said to us earlier, it's, it's scrolled past us, but, you know, how, how, do we, how do we vet these candidates to make sure that they're qualified, like doing background checks to make sure they're qualified for the office? And I would just say, again, pass on to you, man, that's your job as a voter. And, and don't worry, the, uh, their opponents will tell you more than you want to know. It may not always be 100% accurate or presented in an accurate context, but uh, it's, and it's incumbent upon the, the candidates to, to uh, share with you their background, their qualifications, their experience. That's what running for office is all about. I hear you. It, it has gotten somewhat populous, but you could also say that sharing your qualifications and your, your experience, your background, that could be deemed as, as populist. Uh, as well, just depending on the on the candidate, uh, Thomas and Greenwood just thinks that utopia is possible in the country, and says, "Thus, we become a populist nation rather than a constitutional republic, where you have voters cheer on candidates who promise to violate the Constitution and quote stick it to the other party." I I totally disagree with that, uh, Thomas. It's possible to be populist in nature and also adhere to the Constitution. I, I, there's no mutually exclusive scenario there so I don't I don't agree with that uh, whatsoever uh, but it, it also as far as vetting the presidential candidate no that there is no such process we're coming right back and now, and now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking <laughs> Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We are in the Element Well Studios on this hump day. Joining us now, Sandy Middleton, Executive Director of the Center for Violence Prevention, and Lindsey Simmons, Board President, Mississippians Against Human Trafficking. Ladies, thanks for coming in. Good morning. Thank you for having us. All right, give us the update. Uh, what's going on there with the human uh, trafficking situation here in the state of Mississippi? This is such a scourge, and every time we talk about this, I get sad that it's even going on, uh, honestly. But we have uh, strengthened the laws in the state in the, in the last couple of years, and without a doubt, there's more attention on this, I for think, sure. in the state than Absolutely. there has been historically. 
And and more money. I mean, yeah. the legislature has been wonderful to appropriate money to go directly to services for victims. And for us, for the center, we um, have been able to now have 10 rapid response advocates spread throughout the state of Mississippi. And that's been hugely impactful for identifying and screening victims and getting them services. I've got some stats. Okay. Um, 2022 uh, tips. Um, that come through either CPS or the Human Trafficking Hotline. Uh, so far this year, well, no, excuse me, 2022, uh, 325 child tips. Uh, so far this year, 162 tips on children. Uh, we at the Tower have had 27 in shelter. Uh, we've got 82 outreach clients that we're still working with. But on an average, we're responding to about 200 uh, victims through our rapid response program. So we're super busy. And, you know, like I said, thankfully, we've got this money now to, to assist in, you know, hiring these rapid response advocates. That's just really been key to engaging with prospective victims, uh, uh, you know, on site when they're recovered to be able to get them to the right places. And, you know, of course, Speaker Gunn, we're, we just are so appreciated, uh, appreciative to him and to leadership for uh, what they've done for that for us and, you know, just leaning forward to hope for the same thing. Yep. So uh, describe for us what, uh, Sandy, what the typical victim of human trafficking looks like. What's the profile? Well, there's al- almost always a vulnerability, whether that means they're a child who has been in the foster care system, um, whether they're somebody that's uh, has alcohol or drug addiction. And of course, now the situation on the border is going to complicate things, going to continue to complicate things for us. We've just hired a, a full-time Hispanic speaking case manager to mm-hmm. to deal with those and and actually we have a couple of rapid response advocates who also speak uh, Spanish because we you know we're just gearing up for the the rise in those numbers yeah. that we're going to have to try to absorb in addition to everything else so uh, you know typical there's usually some sort of vulnerability that can just always be at the top of the list yeah and almost always a history of sexual abuse Right. So you usually see some abuse in the home that led to them running away or something like that. And for the kids, t- almost all of them have touched the foster system at some point. So we see a lot of that with the kids. And honestly, that was uh, upon learning that, uh, I-, I was totally shocked to find out that uh, a great number of these victims uh, end up uh, in trafficking and they're being trafficked by their own families. Yes. Yeah, a lot of drugs. Drugs yeah. are usually the, the cause of that. Um, you know, moms that will sell their child so they can get drugs, and it's hard for all of us to fathom, but it's certainly something we see fairly often. Unbelievable. And it's yeah. intergenerational, too. I mean, it's been accepted, you know, maybe two generations ago it was accepted, and, and you know, so now kids just grow up in it, and, and they just accept it that this is what we do. I mean, this is what's done to us. This is... Hmm. You know, my contribution to the family or to the gang, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, little girls, 
gangs always promise big things to girls, you know, that they could potentially be a leader or whatnot, and, and, and it never happens. I mean, young girls are never given any leadership positions, and so their role with gang affiliation is either a drug mule or sex trafficking. Yeah, that's crazy. So sad. Lindsay, what about this movie, The Sound of Freedom? How has that heightened awareness of human trafficking? Yeah, we were super excited about this. Our organization hosted a preview night for that on Monday, and we were able to watch it. And it's been great to bring awareness around the country and around the world. And that movie was actually finished five years ago, and they couldn't get anyone to, hmm. to release it. So they, this is great that we finally are at this point where they have it in some theaters. Um, and it was a really good movie. I highly encourage people to go see it. We want to support that kind of stuff. We want people to, we want Hollywood and the powers that be to know that we want to see things like that. That's right. And we also hope that it opens the door for us because the story there was some kids who were promised a modeling career and they were their parents left them for their photos to be taken and they got kidnapped and sold into trafficking and mm-hmm. we, we know that happens in other countries but that's not really the story that we see here um, kind of the hysterics that you see of someone saying someone followed me around Target and they were trying to traffic my child. Like We just don't really know that to be true here. So we hope that this movie raises awareness on a broader scale and then also gives us the opportunity to do things like this and speak to different groups and show people what it does look like here, which is the familial and the gang trafficking and and foster care connections and things like that. So we hope that opens that door for us to continue to raise awareness. And you guys at Mississippians Against Human Trafficking and our um, other organizations as well as the Attorney General, have, have worked with, uh, like other organizations, the Truckers Association, convenience stores, and so forth, where a lot of times these, these victims are, are, are present, and, and it's a sort of educational that they can detect the warning signs of this person's being trafficked. Yeah, that's our goal in this organization is to kind of what, what do you do? Where are you in a day-to-day, in your day-to-day life that you could see these victims? Is it, are you a truck driver and you're at those truck stops? Are you a teacher? What can you look for in your classroom? Do you work at a daycare, the YMCA? You know, who, just a parent. I mean, as, you know, my kids' friends come over, like, I want to be the parent that's a safe place for them and that they know, you know, they could tell us something and that they're not going to be exposed to anything at my house that's, at, that's unsafe. You know, so even as a parent, just being another safe voice, another safe adult for kids. But, yeah, that's our goal is to help people know in Mississippi what they can do on a day-to-day basis to recognize trafficking. And law enforcement organizations, they're updating their training as well constantly so that they're yeah. able to better right. detect. Right. I mean, that, you know, that goes back to our, our landmark piece of legislation yeah. that's set up to certify yeah. uh, human trafficking investigator. Uh, certification and, and they've certified well over 300 wow. at this point and so you know now there's a really good network across the state that law enforcement investigators can reach out to each other and and get help with the case or you know a lot of times you have to have equipment to to look into these cases and to investigate them like you know the phones are are the big issue and you know to be able to dump the phones and you know gotcha. have the technology to be able to investigate on the cellular devices i mean it's it's all a, a big part of appropriate investigations and we want them to reach out to people that have that training or the right. AG's office and get that help and don't just try to do it on your own if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You know, reach out because these cases can get big and deep, you yeah. know, and can cross state lines. And so we need people, other people involved. Do you feel like 
Is it hopeless? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? And I know you talked about uh, the border, which, of course, has seen a lot of uh, increase in trafficking because the border seems to be just wide open. But your thoughts? I don't think it's getting worse. I think we're all getting more aware. And so we're talking about it more. I mean, trafficking's been going on since the beginning of time. If you read the Bible, you see trafficking from the beginning of time. Um but we're more aware of it, and I think we are all taking steps to be more proactive, and we're talking about it more, and it makes it seem like it's going on more, but it's probably the same as it's always mm-hmm. been. I do think the phones at another level of access, especially the kids um, that we didn't have before, hmm. but then that also is social media and technology allows us to all talk more and share more. So. Yeah. Um, the awareness is huge, and I, I, don't, I don't feel like it's hopeless. I feel like we're making some progress. Well, I don't feel like it's hopeless because we get to see victims get appropriate services and recover and start a new life. And so for us, I mean, that's a blessing in of itself. When you see one person who has been through a lifetime of rape, abuse, exploitation, and, and you know, they go through maybe A&D treatment and, and and long-term restoration therapy and treatment, and and they're a new person at the end. And so, you know, when I said we had 25 in shelter this year, I mean, to be able to see the life-changing impact of a long-term specialized program is magic, and it's very inspirational. So it's hard to feel hopeless when you see people whose lives are changed. And hopefully, we're, we're about out of time here, but hopefully with all this technology and all the awareness as well, the training, the laws and so forth, you're coming into contact and able to get to more right. and rescue these people. Exactly. The victims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. you ladies coming in. Thank thanks. you for having us. Yeah, I always appreciate the update. It's a scourge. It's horrific. And uh, thanks for all your efforts. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming right back with more here in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Middays from the Element Well Studio. We thank you so much for joining us today. Don't forget, just another reminder next Thursday, July the 13th, Palmer Home for Children Radio Fawn. Looking forward to that. And then our next remote, hard to believe, the Neshoba County Fair. We will be there. Middays will be there Wednesday and Thursday. Bringing you all the action from Founder Square. Those candidates, they'll be up there speaking to the crowds in attendance. Stumping. At the pavilion. 
And then they'll come right over to the Element Wealth studio set up under the Super Talk tent. I will have a couple of fans that Gary always brings for me to repel the heat. But I look forward to that. Now, yesterday, the candidates made their way up to Jay Cento, Alcorn County. I think that's where we finally settled. That's where it is, right? So my good friend Nick Bain who represents the area, says, yeah, it's Jacinto is the proper pronunciation. But I promise you, folks, when I was up there in 19, when I was considering a run for office, was allowed to speak, uh, the foundation that, that conducts the event, several people around the area in the crowd there said it's Jay Center. And I, I wasn't really sure if that was sort of a colloquialism that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. Um, but there are multiple pronunciations. We got into a discussion on that Monday. But Nick Bain, who kind of runs the affair, serves as the MC, says it's Jacinto, J-A-C-I-N-T-O. Just wanted to clarify that. But all the candidates spoke. I've not heard any reports. If anybody attended... Let us know what you think. I have noticed on social media that the uh, certainly the lieutenant governor and uh, challenger Chris McDaniel had multiple stops yesterday. I think they both spoke in the 10.30 or so back-to-back time frame yesterday. It's 10 minutes they allow candidates to speak. And let me tell you, Rhino, they're hovering around you by the way, the MC, <laughs> they got to. You got to keep it running. And you're told, you get 10 minutes. And they start <clears throat> letting you know <laughs> how many you got. And it should be that way, honestly, in in the interest of, first, of fairness, and second, because you got a lot of candidates that got to get through it all. Um, so that happened yesterday. Just curious how that went. And then the show will be coming up here pretty soon. So we did have a question, I can't find it, about um, who checks the qualifications for presidential candidates. And there are only three. I think a lot of folks are surprised to find that there are only three, as uh, stated in our Constitution. You have to be 35 years of age, a natural-born citizen, and have resided in the country for 14 years. And honestly, it is an inc- it's incumbent upon, first you'd say the parties. If you're going to register as a candidate with a party, you would certainly think the party would vet that the candidate satisfies those criteria. And then if there is some belief on the part, perhaps, of an opposing candidate that a, a a candidate doesn't meet the requirements, they sue. But it's it's not a situation, just to clarify, that one has to show up and say, here's my birth certificate, here's my record of residence. You, you don't have to do that. It's not like somebody you present that to and say, here I am to qualify. Again, if someone wants to challenge that, they could take you to court, and the courts would sort that out, I guess, and possibly ask you to uh, make those 
documents available, that information available, and go from there. But that's how that works. The uh, campaign is supposed to be the vetting process, says Ed in the Delta. If the press did its job, it would be. Yeah, I, I agree with you to a great extent, Ed. And, and again, the cool thing is, Rhino, that's different today is we got this thing called the Internet. And most people that run for office, they have some history that's stored in digital form out there on the Internet. And like I say, if they don't, their opponents are going to make sure you know about it, especially if it's negative in nature. But it's the candidate's job to provide information about their background, their history, their experience, their positions. And um, it's just a matter of voters taking the time to consume that information, to digest it, and allow it to influence them in their voting decision. What we certainly try to do here is cut through all the uh, the untruths. I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes they're untruths. And, and it's not so much that it's just blatant lying as much as it is it just lacks clarification, the message from a candidate, lacks context, lacks nuance, and lacks just completeness. An example is, and I don't want to pick on this one, it just came in my mind, is, is uh, Trump's PAC, a PAC supporting Trump, Donald Trump for President 24, blasting Ron DeSantis as Ron DeTaxis because he supported the fair tax. And when one sees that ad, you've seen it, Rhino, I think you come away with the impression that, wow, in addition to all these other taxes I'm paying, I'm now going to have to pay a 23% sales tax on everything I buy. And that's not true. But that's it's not that it's a, a lie. It's just that it fails to mention, does the ad, that, oh, yeah, this would be in lieu of income tax, Social Security, Medicare. And you also get a rebate based on your income to offset this tax. So those kinds of details are missing. I would also submit, what do you think about this one, Rhino? You've seen the uh, the McDaniel camp, for example, which has really highlighted this uh, issue with Delbert Hoseman. Let's see, quote, told President Trump to jump in the Gulf, refusing to clean up our voting system or to support necessary voter ID reform. Well, I think most people see that and believe that the telling Donald Trump to go jump in the Gulf was related to the 2020 election, which was in the spotlight, and where many people, including people in the state of Mississippi, believe the election was, as Donald Trump would describe it, quote, rigged and fraudulent. But it turns out that that quote applies to a request Donald Trump made vis-a-vis the 2016 election. And it did request some private information that, honestly, I think most conservative Mississippians would not want a presidential candidate or a president or their administration to have in their possession. It's, It's some personal private data. Now, with respect to cleaning up the voter rolls, 
Yeah, you know, we've had Secretary of State Michael Watson on the program many times advocating for that. And there just doesn't seem to be the sufficient interest in either house to really allow such an endeavor to be authorized. And it is true that we've got erroneous voter rolls, across, not only in Mississippi, but across the nation, honestly. Because there's this aversion to taking someone off that maybe you inadvertently did or you did with inaccurate information supporting that removal. But yeah, there's no doubt we have people who have deceased that are on our voter rolls um, in counties in Mississippi, and they need to be cleaned up. And I think what Secretary of State Michael Watson proposed was a pretty reasonable, fair approach to doing so. I don't think it's totally accurate to say that this would have happened were it not for Delbert Hoseman. That's the only point I'm trying to make. There was something else that I thought of, Rhino, that Ben from Madison, when he asked the question, what could Mississippi do to be more business-friendly? And there's something else that came to mind that I'll share on the other side of the break here. I'm watching RFK out there doing push-ups. He's really proud of his physical condition uh, for his age, and it is incredible. I'm also watching Vivek Ramaswamy play tennis. Talking about energy and athletic ability. Coming right back. Stay with us. Is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Musicians in that group, the Traveling Wilburys, are bumping us into this final half hour of middays. Thank you so much for joining us. So the American dream, typically defined as an, an ideal where everyone has equal access to opportunity and where one can aspire to certain goals and achieve those goals. Now, you may fail uh, getting there. That's part of it. But recent polls as to whether or not uh, you have believe you believe you've achieved it. Thirty percent say they have in twenty two. Now that figure is thirty three. So it really hadn't moved a lot. 50% in 2022 said they were on their way. Now it's 42%. Hmm. 2022, out of reach, was felt by 18% of the population. That's up to 24 So that's that's probably the question where there's the biggest delta in response. 18% in 2022 said it's out of reach. 24% now. So it's up six percent, but as a percentage of it, uh, about forty percent, right? 
of the original. So that's that's significant. And I think everybody, however, I should say everybody, but I think there's no consensus is a better way to, to phrase it on what is the American dream. So I think in light of the Supreme Court rulings last week, affirmative action, probably the top of the list. Without discrimination, honestly, without placing race and gender and ethnicity and national origin, mostly race, however, over merit, you just can't achieve the American dream. Gee, that that in, in itself reeks of racism, does it not? It certainly does to me. I think any clear-thinking person would come to that same conclusion. One such person who expressed disapproval of the decision, Robert F. Kennedy. He said, regarding the Supreme Court banning affirmative action in higher ed, I know many Americans feel that purely race-based decisions are unfair. However, (laughs) this feeling misses important context. The effects of racist policies going back centuries are now self-perpetuating. So according to Mr. Kennedy, a candidate for president, according to him, determining admission to college based on merit is racist. Not moving someone to the top of the list or above another person solely on the basis of their race, according to Mr. Kennedy. Oh, no, that's not racism. And what you've seen so many and so many reactions to those who are upset about this ruling is that they believe affirmative action is necessary to atone for past racism. Straight out of Ibram Kendi's book. Present racism is necessary to repay for past racism and future for present. That's the perpetuation, Mr. Kennedy, of racism. He says affirmative action understands this and uses race-based policies to undo the effects of racist policies. Huh? You mean granting admission on the basis of merit, you're saying is racist. Quote, colorblind admissions tend to favor those who are already in the circle of privilege. It favors those who grew up in affluent, educated households. Wouldn't you like to invite in those who have been left out in the cold? Sure, I'm all for that, as long as they meet the merit criteria. That's the part he's missing here. Vivek Ramaswamy took exception to Mr. Kennedy's take on the ruling. He said, I strongly disagree with Robert Kennedy that affirmative action is about, quote, letting in those who have been left out in the cold, end quote. That's wrong. He goes on to point out the majority of black students at Harvard are not descendants of slaves, but descendants of immigrants. Yeah, that makes sense. Giving special preferences to someone who, quote, looks like, end quote, a person who once suffered is not justice. 
we should finally embrace colorblind meritocracy in America rather than to repeat our past mistakes. He's right. This is why I think he's an outstanding candidate. I realize that he's young and new to the scene and likely not to get elected, but he's a clear thinker, and he's common sense, and he's right. And he can speak a little bit from experience here, being the son of immigrants and having attended Harvard, his origin, his national origin being India. Interesting. So a couple of people, uh, yeah, Johnny in West Point, what's the status on uh, Mandy Gunasakra? And so the Supreme Court has said that uh, she does not meet the residence eligibility requirements. I think ended it, not a candidate in the race. For public Can run again position. next time, right. as long as her residence doesn't change between now and then. She mm-hmm. will have been a resident for long enough. Yep, absolutely true. Uh, talking about school choice, sounds like Pennsylvania is about to join the club. Reports been from Madison. That's absolutely true. I've lost count how many states have made the move this year, but it's been close to 10. There are several, and it is a movement that is sweeping the country, and I pray Mississippi is next in line, and we're going to keep uh, pounding that drum. Of course, Jeff in Forest County says, serious question in a 100% school choice utopia. How is school bus? How is a school bus route supposed to operate? The route would be zigzagging all over the place. That's using the assumption that every house in a straight line has kids going to the same school. They already go all over the place. They do, and and there there's some common sense that's injected into these decisions, Jeff. And it's not just a given that hey, I want to go to a school up the street that they've got to allow you in there. There's some other other requirements there, but once you have the policy in place. You would make it possible for uh, a lot of students to attend a different school. It, it could literally be one that's down the street from them, but in a different district, and therefore they are tethered to the address, that, to the one that's associated with their address, should say. How was Canadian Ted Cruz able to run for president? Because he's a naturally born citizen. Because his mother was a U.S. citizen when he was born, granting him U.S. citizenship, making him a natural-born citizen. Correct. I hope that answered that question. It, um, I can assure you, I, I, I believe I'm accurate in this, that were that not the case, people would have been coming out of the woodwork to file lawsuits to prevent him from running. He was born to a U.S. citizen mother. Simple as that. As Rhino said, that makes him a a natural-born citizen. Not a naturalized citizen. It's a different deal. You're absolutely right. Uh, that's what has kept Arnold Schwarzenegger for running for president. That's true. Because he's a naturalized citizen. He was not a natural-born citizen. That is correct. And they, they are not eligible. But a natural-born citizen is, and all it requires is one of your parents to be a citizen. There you go. Uh, could Ted have beaten Hillary? If so, he'd still be president today. No, I don't think he could have, honestly. Thomas and Greenwood asked that question. No, 2016 Ted Cruz and 2023 Ted Cruz looked like two different animals. Totally different. I agree. He... Um, 
I think he graded on a lot of people in 16 and, and uh, what, what really wasn't seen as a serious candidate, honestly, by the majority of people that were in the Republican field. It's just kind of my take on it. Uh, some folks say, yeah, Jimmy from Enid says, so who do you think is the better conservative candidate for lieutenant governor? And a couple other people asked me that as well. You know, that because that race is so crazy close and because I have uh, relationships with both candidates, I like both of them, I think they'd uh, both be fine as lieutenant governor. Uh, I'm not going to state my preference. I don't think that'd be appropriate. I can also say that neither candidate has asked me to endorse them or for a vote. And uh, that's no big deal at this point. I, I think I could better serve our audience by just objectively analyzing the candidates and informing our our listeners and our viewers so they can make an informed choice. We're coming right back with the final segment. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. So don't stop me now. Don't stop me because I'm having a good time. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It is the final segment here on this, uh, what'd you call it? A Monday fied Wednesday? The Mondiest Wednesday in a minute. The Mondiest, okay. It seems like it, but two days left in the week uh, for you and I here on the program. You're here the rest of the week, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, a couple of things I wanted to share that were related to, or one thing at least, related to. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy's response on the affirmative action ruling. Medical leaders in the country, they're all, they also reacted to the SCOTUS decision, as they say, to severely restrict the use of race in college admissions. Severe, you see that severely. Is it, oh my gosh, all hell's going to break loose because we can no longer just grant admission to someone based on their race. These are medical doctors that are upset about this. They say this ruling could reverse decades of progress toward diversifying the nation's physician workforce. Something seen, this is what caught my attention, something seen to them, to these physicians, as key to helping end the country's widespread and deeply entrenched health disparities. Now, I got big problems with that because what it suggests to me is that only black health care professionals, for example, can properly care for black people? Black Physicians can't care for white people, patients, and white physicians can't care for black patients. Therefore, we have health disparities. That's what they're saying. The only way to eliminate the health disparities is to have a more diverse physician community. I say that's horse hockey. You're indicting your own industry. You're saying you engage in racism. 
when you're discharging your duties as a physician. That just blows me away. Well, I guess that a black pilot can't fly an airplane full of white people. Is that what they're saying? Or a black person can't be president of the United States when they only represent 13% of the population. That's just wrong. This is completely wrong. The affirmative action decision has really taken the mask off a whole bunch of people that have cried about racism, but in fact... Deep down, in their heart of hearts, in the part of their personality, they don't talk about it at parties. They're the racists. Unbelievable. They project that internal racism on everybody. I totally agree. So Thomas says that I just want a lieutenant governor that will champion conservative legislation. I asked him what that was. He said income tax elimination for one. So do you want income tax eliminated over... One year, multiple years. Since one year, all we got to do is return to the spending levels of seven years ago. Seven years ago. Sure. So let's just reverse all state pay. Let's reverse all teacher pay. Let's reverse all education funding. Let's take corrections back to that level. And let's get kicked out of Medicaid because we would, we would return to Medicaid spending, state part of Medicaid spending, to 2016. That's what you're saying, Thomas. You really think that's practical? Libertarians do. They're all about burning down the house to kill the spider they don't like. (laughs) Oh, gosh. But you're right. If we return to not quite but close to 2016 levels, we could just do away with the revenue that's produced through the individual income tax, some 50% of, uh, of revenue. It's a little less than 50%. But it's $2 billion, roughly, of revenue of the total six-and-change billion-dollar budget. It's a third of it. I, I, I mean, I'd like to see your pro form on that. So you would just say... You would just say to return to that level. And this line about Republicans campaigned on cutting spending... That's such a joke, honestly. If you feel lied to by the candidate you voted for, then vote for a different candidate. You are one vote. Yeah, and so I corrected myself. It's um, when I when I remembered that the two plus billion dollars, about two point one billion dollars, the individual income tax generates. Um, I do know covers about a third of the spending, and because we have to balance our budget. It stands to reason, then, that that accounts for about a third of our revenue. So we have corporate income taxes, individual, uh, pardon me, uh, sales taxes, which is the biggest component of revenue. And then we have several other fees as well that produce revenue. So the individual income tax is roughly a third of that. Well, that'd be be just a heavy lift in one year to get rid of that now, because you'd have to cut Two billion of spending. Thomas's proposal is to go back to the 16 levels. Man, I I don't know. I don't see that working, Thomas. I really don't. Meanwhile, the opposing party is screaming about all these things that are going to go wrong, and you have to pay campaign against that. Yeah. She was. We'd uh, we get kicked out of Medicaid. We'd no longer qualify for the Medicaid program. Lose about six billion a year from the federal government. We're out of here today. We thank you for joining us. Back tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless. 
Talk Mississippi Media Production.